Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. great honor to be a member of this senior class. And it was an unexpected moment, but one that was very satisfying. I'm sure that you're aware that what we're doing tonight is not the ordinary routine in college commencements. When students come to what is the highest moment in their lives up to that point, in the United States today, it's not normal for the average group to want to express it in a service of adoration and praise. But that's what the students at Asbury College find natural. And that's something that makes me love them and appreciate them very deeply. I'd like to take just a moment and tell you how this Sunday evening service started. It was not originated by the administration or the faculty. One day, the president of the senior class came to me and said, could I have an appointment and could I bring my whole cabinet with me? So I instantly wondered what I had done wrong, and we made the appointment. And he came in with his entire cabinet. I filled my office with enough chairs to where we could seat them all. And he sat down and looked at me and said, do we have to have that fine arts program on Sunday evening? And I said, do you have an option? He said, yes, I do. We do. And I said, what's that? He said, it will be the first time that all of our families have ever been together. We've had four years together, but our families have never been together. We want to have chapel on Sunday evening. And I said, really? And they said, yes, we'd like to have chapel on Sunday evening." Now, you see, we imposed chapel for four years on students at Asbury College. I was fascinated at the prospect of having the students impose chapel on us. But I decided that was a reciprocal arrangement. And if uh, they would accept it the way we do it for four years, we were ready to listen to what they had to say. And it was one of the most delightful experiences of my life as I sensed what they were after. You see, here they were, coming to the highest moment in their lives up to that point. And they wanted to share that highest moment, or those highest moments, with their families, with their friends, and they wanted to share in the presence of the Lord. Now, that gave me a clue to something that has been very refreshing to my spirit and to my mind sense. Apparently, they did not feel that the presence of God was antithetical in any way to their joy, to their fulfillment, and to their opportunity and their occasion to celebrate. And it dawned on me that somehow or other they'd come to the place that they believe that if you put God right in the center of life, It didn't damage anything. That you didn't need to keep him off on the margins 
as a threat to your joy, your satisfaction, and your fulfillment, but rather that there was something about it when you got him at the center that he had a hallowing effect on all the rest. And what would otherwise simply be good could become holy if he was in the middle of it. And so we've continued these services since that session with the senior class cabinet. And they've been very refreshing to us. You see, I think that they had discovered something that oftentimes the church has forgotten. There is no question but that the church is an instrument of redemption in the world. But are you aware that the scripture has another doctrine that balances and prepares the way for the doctrine of redemption, and that is the doctrine of creation? Not only is God the one who wants to save and recreate, but the real God, the one who wants to save and recreate, is the one that put it together in the beginning. And in the same way that in the incarnation and in the person and passion of Jesus Christ, you can see the love of God manifested and understand something of his nature There is something also about life itself that when you put him at the center begins to speak of him and bear witness to him. And I've come to believe that that's a truth that many of us have lost and that it may be that in a Christian college it can be said better than it can be said anywhere else because the church is simply one of the institutions of society. At that point, I began to let my mind run a little. And you know, I've come to believe that there are some other witnesses to the goodness and the grace of God apart from the church. Take, for instance, the inevitable tendency of human beings to choose to have somewhere leaders that can lead them. Did you ever notice that if you get three human beings together, you have to have a committee? And if you get a committee, you have to have a chairman. And then as you work, sooner or later, you have to have somebody to expedite and you look for a leader. I've come to where, and there's some interesting privileges in getting old, one of the things is, when you're as old as I am, to look back on all the presidential campaigns you've lived through. Aren't you glad they only come once every four years? But have you ever noticed what we do in that fourth year when we choose a president? It is unbelievable what we do to ourselves. We take two human beings and then we begin to invest them with qualities that no president that we have ever had has had. And we say, if you just elect my Republican, if I'm a Republican, or if you just elect my Democrat, if I'm a Democrat, then you say, if you'll just elect my candidate, why, the millennium will come. And we do it with a straight face. And we pay people to repeat that line. All across the United States. And some way or other, we depart from our senses 
for a political campaign because there's nothing in our experience to indicate that any human that we've ever elected has done what we think these fellows will be able to do for us. You know, I've decided there's theology in that. Everybody's looking for a leader. And all of society has a messianic strain in it. You know, the Hebrews were looked upon as unusual because they said there is a leader coming. And one of these days when he comes, he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. We do that every four years. Is that because we're made for a kingdom of justice and of righteousness and of peace? And there's something in us in all of our sinfulness. There's something in us in all of our lostness that tells us there ought to be a kingdom like that. And there ought to be a king like that. And you know, I find when I pick up the scripture, it says there is one like that. He hasn't come yet to establish his kingdom, but he's coming. And I find all of our social life bearing witness to the fact that that's what we all want. Now, when I got to that point, I thought of something else. Isn't it interesting that uh, everybody you ever met had parents? It really is something we shouldn't take for granted. Rather obvious, it's obvious enough you may miss it for a long time. But you know, I've gotten to the place where every time I see one person, I know there are two more. Or else they were. Because there's nobody you've ever met that didn't have a father and a mother. And do you know, I've come to believe there's theology in that. That God said, let me tell you, the way life should be lived, and there are things you can learn this way that cannot be learned any other way. I've put you in a family with a little F because I want to put you in a family with a capital F. And the same way everybody you've ever seen has a parent, I'd like for everybody that ever exists to be children of mine. Do you remember what Peter, who lived with Jesus for three years, said? The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, and he has built into our lives witnesses about himself. It's no accident to me that the greatest title used for God in Scripture is not king, though we are to have a king, but the supreme word which is used about God is Father. You will remember that in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the father of Israel. And when Jesus came, he said, let me tell you about God. He's my father. And that's the most common title that Jesus used for God. And when he gave us a prayer, which we heard read a few moments ago, he didn't say begin our king, our sovereign. He said, begin our father which are in heaven. I think it is not an accident that the greatest Christian creed ever written begins, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. 
I want to ask you a question. I think I know enough about Scripture to know that when the Scripture uses the term father, there's no gender in it. It is the same way that in the book of Genesis, when God says, let us make man, Adam, in our image, the Hebrew says, let us make Adam in our image, Adam is the word for man, male and female created he them, and the them is the Adam. So that uh, we are not talking here when we talk about man in terms of masculine or feminine. We're talking about both. And you will remember that the marriage ceremony is to make the two one flesh. Now, I do not believe when the Scripture says, when you pray, say, our Father, there's any gender in that because uh, the Father was the head of the home and he had a wife. And so what is being said is, God is our parent. We came from him, and we have an earthly imaging of that in the family. You know what I've come to believe? When you and I stand in the judgment, and when all men stand before God, I do not believe God is going to have to read a list of things to convince us that we were stupid if we missed it. I believe that God, having created the world, the universe, the way he has, I believe he's going to look at us and say, how did you miss it? I put every single one of you in a family with a little f to let you know that I wanted you to be a part of a family with a capital F. And I gave every one of you parents so that you'd know that what was physically there, I wanted to be true spiritually, where you would be born from above and be members of my family. Now, you see, that's the doctrine of creation. I've decided, living with a bunch of teachers, that God's the greatest of all teachers. He's a pedagogue with a capital P who knows how to develop the supreme object lesson. But then I came to the third one. You know, it's interesting that everybody you ever bump into is either male or female. No exceptions, are there? There may be a few that are mixed up as to which they are. But the realities are that somewhere or other, written into our physical system, we're one or the other. And I've decided there's theology in that. It's interesting, there's no such thing as a typical human being. Did you know you have to have two to get a typical one? Because we come in two kinds. And God made it that way. Now, why did he do it that way? I've come to believe that our sexuality is an indication that we're not all here. And that we're made for somebody beyond ourselves. And that some way or other, our completeness is never totally in ourselves. Then I noticed how much there is in the Bible about marriage. You notice what we're talking about? Social institutions in life found in every society in the world. The state that says we need a king, 
the family that says everybody's got a parent, and then marriage, which says everybody is supposed to be either a member of or a byproduct of a marriage, or should be. Have you ever thought about how much scripture there is on that? Do you notice that the climax of the created process, the climax of that story in Genesis 1 and 2 is God gives Eve to Adam and says, Now you will find your life complete. That's the beginning of the book. Do you know what's on the last page of the book? It's where... The bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven like a bride adorned for her wedding. Isn't it interesting? The Bible begins with the wedding of two human beings and ends with the wedding of Christ and his church. You know, when I got to that point, I think for the first time I realized why Jesus began his public ministry with a wedding. You remember the first miracle he performed was to help Take away the possibility of embarrassment for a wedding couple. When I was a pastor, I always enjoyed that. Because when I was counseling a couple getting ready to get married, I'd look at the girl and say, I want to tell you how much Jesus is interested in your wedding. If it's necessary to make it right, he'll perform a miracle for you. Apparently has a special interest in them. He didn't begin with the church service a revival meeting or a prayer meeting, he began his public ministry with a wedding, just like human history began with one. And then I remember I noticed that they came to John the Baptist and said, John, you used to have big crowds and you've lost them. How do you feel about that guy that you baptized that's stolen your crowd? And he said, well, I'm just the best man. The best man shouldn't get upset when the bridegroom upstages him. So that John apparently saw Jesus' ministry in marriage nuptial terms. Then I remembered that the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, John came through here and he had good religion. He and his disciples fasted and prayed. Your disciples don't fast. And they were one up on him on good religion. And Jesus said, is it appropriate to for the friends of the bridegroom to fast at a wedding announcement party? I've come for a wedding. The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken from the friends of the bridegroom, and then they will fast. But this is a time for celebration. Isn't it interesting that Jesus saw all of his ministry in terms of a wedding, marriage? I'm grateful for the cross. I'm glad for the doctrine of redemption, the message of salvation that comes out of it. But is it that God wants us in just ordinary life? Like these seniors says, let's bring him right into the middle of our commencement, our celebration. Is there something right in the middle of life that shows that life is made for him? And he's made for life. Now let me quickly suggest three things that I think come out of those three institutions that fit with the doctrine of incarnation, revelation, and redemption. Do you notice that the first is we need a leader? 
We're made for a kingdom, and we're made for a king. And did you know the king's coming? And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know that that means that everybody will do what's right? Now, I may be a heretic at this point, but you be patient with me if I am. Because do you know what I've come to believe? I've come to believe hell will be just as obedient as heaven. Every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess, but they'll just hate it. He is going to reign. Righteousness is going to prevail. And there's not going to be any pocket in the universe where he doesn't reign. He's king. Every committee chairman you've ever seen is a type of the Christ that is to come. Maybe that's the reason some of them try to be so dictatorial. <laughs> every governor that you've ever seen and every president that you've ever known about is a type, every king of the one that is to come. The lion as he stalks through the jungle is a type of the Christ who will come and reign. But you know, there's something inside us that's frightened by that. We're frightened by pure authority and pure power. That's the reason I'm glad for that second social institution, the family. Because do you know who is going to, the God who reigns, what his nature is? He's a father. And the incredible thing is, What a good pedagogical device the home is. Do you know there's something that can be learned in the home that can never be seen anywhere else? You can't learn it anywhere else because you can't even see it. Do you know the home is the only place in human life where you can see law and love sit in the same two chairs? I love the fact that the first person who ever says no to you is either a woman who goes into the valley of the shadow of death at risk to her own life to give you existence, or it's a man who goes out and works a 40-hour week or worse so you can eat and have clothes to wear and go to college. Isn't that interesting? There's something within us that says authority and love don't go together. I paddled Denny one day when he was about this size. And I heard him talking to Beth afterwards. And he looked at Beth, who was 19 months older, and said, Beth, Daddy is confused. And she said, why? What do you mean? I didn't know he knew the word confused. And if he did, I didn't think she'd understand it. But he said, when I asked him why he spanked me, he said he spanked me because he loved me. He's confused. <laughs> I thought of it this weekend. Last time my father, who was a disciplinarian, last time I saw him, 
It was at Christmas in 1942. He handed me a check for $500. I'd never known him to borrow money until I was a junior in Asbury College. He borrowed money to keep me in school. I was the fifth of five kids, depression kids. He handed me a check for $500 and said, Will that pay you out for your A.B. degree? And I said, Yes, that'll pay me out. Six weeks later, I was living in Wesley Dormitory, and a night watchman came to get me about 5 o'clock in the morning. There was only one telephone on campus. It was in Glide Crawford. And he said, You have a long-distance phone call. And I went, and I heard my mother say, Son, Dad's gone. She said, I waked up, and he was getting up. He'd get up in the night, go to the kitchen, get him some milk, and then sit down and read his Bible. She said, I waked up again, and he was quoting Scripture verses to himself. He memorized Scripture to the last hour of his life. She said, I waked up again, and he had called me, and when I touched him, he was gone. I had two emotions. One of gratitude for that kind of father. But the second thought that went through my head, it took me a long time before I realized that most people would consider it presumptuous. When she said to me, son, dad's gone, do you know what I remembered? I remember that last conversation and that check. And you know what I thought? Well, he's finished his work. See, I was the fifth kid. Somewhere down in my consciousness, subconsciousness, or somewhere, I felt that my father's purpose in life was to get me ready to live. I can remember the times when he said no to me and when he paddled me. But, you know, I've never had a problem believing that law and love can be united in the same person. And the king who's coming is one who's a father who wants to give everything he's got to us for our well-being. But says an absolute no on anything that's damaging to our well-being. Moral law, divine love, and they're together. Now, with that, it brought me to a third thing, that marriage bit. What is there to be learned from the fact everybody gets married? If God created this thing, there's something pedagogical in it. You know what I think it is? That we're made to live for somebody other than ourselves. You know how contradictory that is to everything in our society and our culture? I heard a man say the other day he was in the Far East in Singapore, the weekend that the Oscars were given out. And so on Sunday, the editor of the daily paper in Singapore wrote about the awards. This fellow said, You know what impressed him the most? He said the thing that was incomprehensible to him was 
that when these famous personalities were ready to receive the highest accolade that could ever be given to them, the highest honor they could ever achieve in their profession, there was not one of them that made a reference to his parents. That was incomprehensible to him. You know, the first thing went through my head, that anybody had raised that question is incomprehensible to us. Because we see, we think everybody gets there by himself. So nobody's going to stop in those moments of glory to talk about their mom and their dad, except seniors at Asbury College, who says we'd like to recognize the people who made it possible for us. But you see, we go that one step farther in... We think we're independent, and we're living for ourselves. And so we're turning what God intended to be a paradise into a hell. And all you've got to do is look at an American city. Look at an American high school today. Living for us. I remember over here in Bernard Chapel hearing Elsie give her witness. I was a sophomore. I didn't know her up at that point. And I thought, I like what I hear. I like better what I see. So the next morning I was posted at the end of chapel against a radiator in the administration building where the uh, post office boxes were. I knew she'd go get her mail. I leaned against that radiator like I was part of the woodwork. Sure enough, she came in right in front of me, walked toward me. I did my best to act as if uh, I didn't have the vaguest interest in the world. But when she walked past me, I can remember how she walked over, bent over, opened her mailbox, took her mail out. And I can tell you what she was wearing. As she walked down the corridor and walked around the corner, in that administration building. That's a hallowed place for me because I've been chasing her ever since. And you know, the first time I said I love you to her, what I meant was, you know, I feel awfully good when you're near me and I'd like to keep you as close as I can. In other words, I like to be happy. That's what I meant. But you know, I got married. You know something I found? Strange thing. I found it didn't matter what was happening to me. If she was unhappy, I was unhappy. And if I could make her happy, that was the greatest joy that I ever knew. Do you know where the greatest human fulfillment is? When you come to live for somebody outside yourself. And, of course, you know who the supreme one is. Because there's only one worthy of that kind of monogamous, monotheistic commitment. I thought in those days if I could get Elsie, I'd have everything I ever needed. And then one day it dawned on me that she met more dimensions of my need than anybody else in the world. But that there were dimensions in me that even she couldn't meet. That shook me up. You know what shook me worse? was when I found there were dimensions in her that I couldn't meet. 
And then I said, yes, it is a parable. It's a pointer. Our fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. And when you bring God the Father and God the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right to the center of life, then it's when you say, for heaven's sake, this is what I've been looking for forever. This is what I've been looking for all these years. This is what I was made for. There's something way down in the cells of your body, like we heard about this morning, that says this is the thing for which I was made. In the Old Testament, it says, you can't convict a person on the basis of one witness. You have to have two. I've decided there are two witnesses to Christ, that every man needs him. One of them's a cross, but one of them is just the way he put us together. And when we see, we say, for heaven's sake, why was I blind so long? Now, uh, I'd like to ask you as we come to the close of this session, is he at the center of your life or do you keep him on the margin? You're scared to live without him, or maybe you're not. Maybe you've ditched him. I want to say the witness of these students is that life gets better when you put him right at the middle. And when you make him supreme, he turns the good into the holy. He hallows all that he touches. So that day, those seniors said to me, I said to them, well, who's going to preach? And he looked back at me, some of these Kids are wags. He looked at me and said, you are, yellow notes and all. They watch you. Then he said, and we don't want you to close without giving an invitation. I said, really? Oh, he said, that altar means too much for us. Not to make it available to our families or anybody else that wants to kneel at the place where we've knelt and where we have found God. So I'm simply here tonight to do what they told me to do.